my name is Shani Jamila, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Lineage. This show is actually part of my practice as a conceptual artist. My work, which is made in response to centuries of family records meticulously researched by my genealogist grandmother, explores ancestry, identity formation, and the idea of home. On Lineage, I host intimate, in-depth conversations with fellow socially engaged Black artists about these same themes. Today, my guest is the interdisciplinary artist and scholar, Dr. Fahamu Pukou. Fahamu's work combines observations on hip-hop, fine art, and popular culture. His paintings, performance art, and academic work address concerns around contemporary representations of Black men and how these images impact both the reading and performance of Black masculinity. Dr. Pakou exhibits his work worldwide. He's also the force behind Advantage Point, an arts curriculum focused on young Black men, and he's the founding director of Adama, the African Diaspora Art Museum of Atlanta. We began with the discussion about how he incorporates a global analysis of race into his practice, including an upcoming exhibition he's curating on Blackness. Let's listen in. Based on uh, uh, media images, uh, we construct these fantastical kinds of perspectives about each other. You know, Africans on the continent have this idea about Americans. We in, a, in the U.S. have these ideas about Africans on the continent, and it all gets twisted up into this, you know, kind of mess. Uh, you know, uh, we have access to um, knowledge and information and resources and things that we can really inform and educate ourselves on. We can jump on our phone and teach ourselves how to speak Lingala, you know. Um, uh, so there's this, all of this, these, these new forms of contact that begin to reframe how we think about Black identity. Um, and so what does it mean to be Black um, in the 21st century? And particularly to be Black and US-based and in direct conversation with uh, the African continent, you know, as a part of an uh, art fair that celebrates the African diaspora, right? Um, I made a, a, a point of talking about the absence of Black American artists in these international African diaspora art fairs, right? Every place else is represented for the most part, except for the U.S. Um, and, uh, and, and I thought that was an interesting omission. Um, uh, and I wanted to address that with this project. So interesting because typically in civil society gatherings, you have the exact opposite effect, you know, mm -hmm. like in UN conferences, for instance. You know, you see like an overrepresentation, a hyperrepresentation of uh, America and Americans, um, because we had the capital to be able to get there. You know what right. I mean? And the ability with the visas and passport structures and all the inequities embedded in that to be able to be there. Um, so it's interesting to see that sort of opposite phenomenon happening. You know, in the in the art world, and really, you know, speaks a bit, I think, to how we conceive of of what what the African diaspora is, who's in it, you know, mm -hmm. and exactly. the different roles and hierarchies and, um, you know, all the things that are, that are spoken to inside of those kinds of constructions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, um, uh, one of the things that's always been fascinating to me about that, and that's why I like with, with Adamo, we say everywhere we go, there we are, is that, you know, 
wherever you go within the African diaspora, you can find, you know, you see people getting down, it's like, this man, that looks like my uncle, you know? Uh, oh man, me and my friends used to play that game when we were children growing up. You know what I mean? Like you, you can find, oh, my grandmother used to cook like that. Or, you know, we had plastic covering on our <laughs> furniture in the door. You know what I mean? It's like all of these different narratives uh, are present in all of these places in the diaspora because of how we've moved around the world, right? Um, you know, my family, my uh, like I was born in Brooklyn, but my father was born in Panama. His father was born in Costa Rica. His father before him was born in Martinique. You know what I'm saying? It's like all of those legacies perpetuate themselves, right? How far back can you trace in your family? How many generations back can you go? Um, as of recently, uh, you know, we've been able to do research in Martinique and we were able to identify our oldest known ancestor who was born on a rum plantation in Martinique in 1814. What do you know about them? Uh, uh, very, very little. I just, I have names. Um, and uh, uh, very interestingly enough, um, all of this came about as a result of a Google search. Oh, really? Yeah, like maybe 15 years or so ago. My brother was doing a Google search, um, and you know, for like our last name, and uh, uh, two two names kind of kept popping up. And one was my name; the other was a guy named Thierry Pacou, who's a composer based in Lyon, France. Um, and you know, my brother was like, "Man, you know, we might be related." So he, you know, reaches out to Thierry, like, "Hey, you know, I think we." We may be related, we have the same last name, da, 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 da. And Thierry responded like, hey, you know, I don't know very much about our family history, but my brother does, you know, I'll connect you with him. So anyway, he connects us with his brother, Michel. Um, and come to find out, you know, we, we realize like we are connected, like uh, our great grandfathers were brothers, right? Wow. Here's the, here's the crazy part of the story. So, and uh, in 1902, um, uh, Mount Pele uh, erupted in Martinique and killed like, like thousands of people uh, who lived in and around the area where the vol volcano was. Um, in that, all of the Pacus who lived in Martinique at the time, and there were a number of them, were all killed. Two survived. And that's because they had left the island shortly before the volcano erupted. One went into Costa Rica and one went to France. Those are our two ancestors. I remember actually, I did an a, a international exchange in Martinique when I was an undergrad mm -hmm. at Spelman. And I remember um, learning about that eruption and, and, and there was a, a monument to one person who survived um, in this particular part of Martinique that we were in. And he survived because he was a prisoner mm. and the walls of his cell were so thick <laughs> wow. that even the lava couldn't penetrate. And so as a result, he was alone, the sole wow. survivor. Wow, wow.
Yeah, I know that there's a, uh, we had a genealogist who's based in Martinique um, who did all of this research and he provided us like detailed um, records like birth certificates and marriage records and all those kinds of things um, that go all the way back to that oldest known ancestor that I mentioned before. Uh, and the rum plantation was called, the rum that was made on that plantation was called Rum Haku. <laughs> Um, it's being made. No, it's, it's, it's no longer being made. But actually, uh, side note, uh, my wife, uh, Jamila, when she learned that, she started making her own infused rums and she calls it rum cuckoo. Oh my God, I love that. Uh, but um, I'm actually uh, planning um, this summer to travel uh, to Martinique to do additional research. There's a memorial um, in Martinique, like dedicated to the... Um, the victims of the, uh, uh, who were killed during the volcano eruption and the names of all the Pakus who died are inscribed on the walls of this monument. Oh, that's uh, gonna be extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, so I'm looking forward to going there. And I'm, I'm, so uh, uh, Thierry and I have been for the past year working on a project together. Um, so he's a, he's a, a really famous um, French composer. He does classical, music but it kind of infused with some like new technologies and you know digital technologies um and so we're working on a production um together um so i'm creating uh the visuals for it it's going to be kind of like a, for lack of a better word like a, a opera type piece you know so I, i'll create the performance and the visuals and he's going to do the score and the music and it's going to be a story it's going to be a narrative that tells the story of how our family was like broken apart and ultimately how the rivers come back together to connect us. Wow. That sounds amazing. The, um, I can't wait. Do you already know where that's going to be staged or is it st it's still in the formative? It's still in the formative phases, but our, our goal will be to do the initial performance in Martinique and then have it travel to different places in the diaspora where our family has had Roots, right? So from Martinique to, you know, Costa Rica, to France, to Panama, to the U.S. Um, so we wanted to be a touring production. I seriously couldn't love this idea more. <laughs> that's, no, that's really extraordinary. The title of the piece is Where the Lava Cools, the Foundation is Laid. Mm. I mean, honestly, both of these, the, the Black Project and, and this, this opera to be are both really speaking so directly to what it is I'm exploring in lineage, you know, mm -hmm. this idea of, of how ancestry impacts our identity formation mm -hmm. um, and, and how that's explored um, in our artistry, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so one of the things that's coming up for me is that you, you spoke about, that I've heard you speak a number of times about the ways in which different literary figures have impacted um, your thinking and your making, you know. In mm -hmm. um, Watiango, for instance, has been somebody who who um, sparked this idea of remembering in mm -hmm. your work. Can you speak a little bit about um, about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's funny because I, I now that you asked that question, it makes me realize that I've kind of been on this track a little longer than I thought I was. You know, particularly around um, you know trying to uh, distance 
um, my black identity from simply being a response to, you know, white oppression and you know, uh, uh, injustice or whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, uh, Nguji Wationgo is is someone who is his his really sort of like colored a lot of the way that I think about identity. Um, particularly uh, as he breaks down two concepts and two constructs. Um, linguicide is basically like the homicide of language, like the killing of language. Um, and, and, and this is uh, more directly towards like uh, African descendants who were stripped from the land and brought to the US or Europe or wherever it may be um, and denied uh, the ability to speak and practice their language, right? So we couldn't speak our language. We couldn't practice our customs. We couldn't do our, you know, practice our spiritual, you know, spirituality. Like everything that made us who we were was taken away, right? Um, this is the lingua side. Uh, lingua fam is the like famine of language. Um, so for continental Africans who experience colonialism directly, right, where you know, say Nigeria, where, you know, uh, the official language of business and all these kinds of things is English, you know, uh, and, and particularly, you know, he's referring to like the colonial period where uh, people might have spoken their native language in familial settings, right? But in order to move around in the world and business and school and all these kinds of things, you had to learn your oppressor's language and employ your oppressor's language. Um, he makes the argument that in, in doing this, you have effectively dismembered uh, black subjectivity from itself. Now we are operating in fragments and pieces of who we are. We have a memory of this thing, you know, we have this practice that we do over here, but we don't necessarily connect it back to its source, right? So we, we're operating in, in, in these kind of like broken, pieces. And so that was really powerful for me to, to, to think about because so much of the Black experience has, all, like, has again, always been around how do we uh, resist the impact and the imposition of whiteness on us. Um, and when you're constantly in that state of like defense, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can't actually move forward. You're just blocking, you know? Um, what does it mean to be whole? Like, what does it mean to be more than just bits and pieces? What does it mean to not be traumatized? Um, and uh, uh, so I'm, I've been really fascinated about that. And one of the things that I've been, one of the ways I've been employing, uh, employing this in my work is by identifying, you know, spaces where blackness has, has, been at its most uh, verdant or vibrant. Um, uh, and so I kind of locate that into three areas, right? Uh, the kind of physicality and somatic attitude of like hip hop, uh, the, um, the intellectual space of like the black arts movement and negritude, uh, and then the spiritual body um, of like African spiritual cosmologies such as Ifa, right? 
And so it's body, mind, and spirit, hip hop, negative, ifa, right? But it's also past, present, and future, right? And in bringing these three elements together, I attempt to remember, to recompose, reconstruct the, the black body um, and, and, and make us whole and complete and not, <laughs> you know, not with our guard up, right? We're just being. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so, so that's, that's been really uh, instrumental, I think, in my work over at least for the last 10 years. So this connection between scholarship and art in your work is something that I find really fascinating because you have your earned PhD. You also have this underpinning of literary artists who are contributing to what you're doing um, in, in the visual realm. And then I've also heard you refer to your paintings as text. Can you talk a little bit more about, about that idea? The idea of my work, my work being texts uh, came about through the process of writing my dissertation. You know, what if it's not a text? What does it look like? You know, um, what form does it take? You know, and, and, and that was the, the thing that really like blew my mind. It's like, what form does it take? What form does it take? You know what I mean? Um, and ultimately I uh, realized that there was nothing really uh, restricting the, the form of my scholarship, right? Like that I didn't have to just write a 200 page dissertation. Like I could do something else. And that was really important to me because uh, I've always wrestled with um, the idea of institutions um, being the sort of like uh, uh, custodian of our voices, um, especially because my work has been so entrenched in Black culture and Black narrative. Uh, I always try to like find ways to ensure that the people who I'm talking to and talking about in my work get exposure to my work. Like how can I make this work, which I feel is really important and really necessary and, and crucial um, to our existence, how can I get that in front of people? Um, and it was at that point that I really began to realize that the work that I'm doing operates as texts. Like when we don't just look at paintings, we read paintings, you know, um, even when you're not trying to, like you, walk by paint, or it doesn't, it's not even just paintings, any kind of visual image. That's why they say a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Um, when we see an image, we automatically begin to construct narratives and uh, uh, project our thoughts and ideas and, you know, all of these kinds of things. We're, we're having an engagement, a dialogue with this visual image, uh, the same way we would have a dialogue with the text that we were reading. Um, and so for me, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in breaking down the like, institutional barriers that have uh, traditionally um, uh, kept us out of conversations that were essential to our existence um, and not having other people dictate to us how we should be and who we should be. I'm interested in uh, creating points of access, um, portals other than doors that bring people into this conversation, bring people into this, 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 uh, this dialogue. Um, and ultimately that can be transformative. Who are the 
artistic ancestors that you see yourself in the lineage of? If I were to hazard a guess, and you know, feel free to tell me if I'm wrong, but when I look at your work, I see the the influence of Barclay, Hendrix, oh, right, for instance. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, uh, I'd never forget the first time I saw a Barclay Hendrix painting. Um, it was when he had a, uh, his retrospective exhibition at the Nasher at Duke. I think this this must have been 2008, actually. Uh, I remember my boy Cosmo being like, yo, man, there's an artist uh, has a show at the Nasher. It looks a lot like the like your stuff. You got to see it. Like it reminded me of your work. And I was like, really? Like, okay, let me go check this out. You know, I almost fell on my ass when I walked in the room. <laughs> Paintings were so immaculate and dope and beautiful and unapologetically black. I was like, this is what I want to do, you know? And so even now when I paint, when I go to my canvas, I, I, I call what I do chasing Barkley, you know? <laughs> um, and I did have an opportunity to, to meet him uh, um, in, in person uh, a few years later. Oh, uh, what's that like? Oh, that's amazing. Um, uh, so I, I did a painting after that, uh, um, after I saw his work, you know, I really started like studying his painting and like, you know, looking at like how he did his details and really trying to like, you know, uh, em emulate, you know, what he was doing. Uh, and ultimately I made a uh, piece that was a tribute to Barclay Hendricks. It was inspired by his piece, Icon for My Man Superman. Um, and uh, it was uh, subsequently uh, acquired by the National Museum, right? And they ended up hanging my painting, uh, which is called None of My Heroes, next to Barclay Hendricks' icon from my, you know, icon from my man Superman. Wow. Uh, and uh, there was an exhibition, um, I think it was called Southern Dialogue or something like that was the name of the show that was uh, curated in that painting along with a couple of Barclay's paintings were included. And I went to the opening at the Nasher and uh, I knew I was told that Barclay was gonna be there. So like I was all nervous, Barclay Hendricks, you know. <laughs> uh, I walked into the, to the museum, I saw him standing there talking to Trevor and Franklin Sermons and I was like, man, okay, come on Peku, get a drink. <laughs> I go, gotta go meet your hero, you know. And as I approached, I, you know, went to reach my hand out uh, to shake his hand. And uh, I was like, uh, Mr. Hendricks, my name is, he was like, I know who you are, young buck. I love what you do. Come give me a hug. And he gave me a hug. I was like, <gasps> he was like, I love what you do. Your work is really great. Keep it going. You know, keep doing what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, by that point, I was so like, taken aback that he knew who I was, that I forgot everything that I was going to say. And I just kind of clammed up, you know. Um, but anyway, after that, I had to, you know, now I'm shaking, you know, I had to go get another drink. So I'm standing in line at the bar and there's a, a lady in front of me. And she's like, how are you doing tonight? I'm like, I'm doing, I'm doing good. I can't believe I just met my hero, you know, and he knew who I was and he, you know, told me to keep going, blah, blah, blah. She was like, oh, who was that? And I was like, oh, Barkley Hendricks. And she was like, let me tell you, he puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like anybody else. And I should know because I'm his wife. And I'm like, Whoa! 
but that was that was a that was a magical night. That was a magical night. It was super sweet, both of them. But yeah, in 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 that lineage, uh, like I said, definitely uh, Barkley Hendrix, um, uh, certainly um, Arturo, uh, who's been my mentor since I was like 19 years old. Arturo uh, Lindsay. Arturo Lindsay, yeah. Um, and uh, 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 Basquiat, uh, for reasons that um, you know, like I, I've always recognize the trickster nature of Basquiat. Such a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant trickster. Um, and it frustrates me to no end that people are often caught up in this notion of Basquiat as this like quote unquote radiant child. It's nothing childlike about him at all, right? Um, uh, uh, I did, a, uh, I was on a, uh, at a conference, um, it was called Basquiat at 55 that NYU did a few years ago. And I gave a lecture there uh, called Basquiat is a grown ass man. Um, <laughs> uh, and, um, um, but my favorite artist, uh, one of my favorite artists of all times is David Hammonds, you know? For a very similar reason, you know, the kind of the, the, the brilliance of it, the trickster nature of it, the performative nature of it. I really, really love uh, his work. I love his ideas. I, I love that he questions form, you know? And, and that was before I even had that, I or was exposed to that, that question of like, what form does it take? But like knowing uh, Hammond's work and, and studying his work and looking at his work over the years, that is, you know, uh, probably you know one of the biggest questions that he asks himself. Like, what form does it take? Uh, and I and I, I love that about his uh, about his work. Uh, it's it's a it's so many artists that I, I I look up to that I would say um, inspired uh, you know inspired me and influenced me. You know, Alice Neal. Um, you know, uh, 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 Betty Sarr. Um, you know, uh, uh, even Allison Sarr. Uh, you know, I, I'm 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 really into uh, I'm I'm re really into art that that like outside of Barclay Hendrix and maybe Alice Neal, I, I don't look at a lot of painters. You know, um, in fact, I I consider myself more than a painter. I consider myself a performance artist. You know, the, the paintings are kind of like the final stage of the performance for me. Flesh that out, what, what do you mean? The, the work doesn't begin and end at the campus. Like it starts long before that, right? Um, and so with each uh, series that I do, I start out by doing, after, once I figure out what form it's gonna take, if it's gonna be a series of paintings or drawings or something like that, I start out with a photo shoot. Um, uh, and the photo shoot is like, like re really like legit, like performance. Like I go into character, I'm, I style, um, I art direct, uh, but then, you know, I relay my idea, my concept to, you know, one of my collaborators, like, you know, my friend TT Coles, for example. I'm like, okay, Coles, this is what, this is what I'm going for. This is my idea. Uh, and then, I jump in front of the camera and I'm in performance mode. 
she snaps while I move, right? I don't know what the photos are gonna look like until after it's done. Uh, and then there's another editing process. So I go through reviewing the photos, editing, selecting, you know, tweaking the colors, you know, deciding like what it's gonna look like, the size it's gonna be like, all those kinds of things. Painting is like the third stage of that. Um, uh, and the painting, you know, like I said, is, is kind of the final stage of the performance because this is the, this is the, like the, uh, the curtain call, right? Um, uh, so when, when, those, when the curtains open, the audience sees the painting. Um, and then they have their interaction with the painting, but this performance has been going on, you know, for much longer than that. And then there's typically some kind of uh, performative aspect, or uh, maybe it's a, maybe it's a lecture, maybe it's a performance, maybe it's a video, maybe it's a film, maybe it's an album. You know, like the expression goes into other types of forms that are in conversation uh, with the paintings, but that enhance the performance of the, the, the paintings. And so um, it's, it's, it's uh, I, I, I'd like to think that my work is always uh, multidisciplinary, not just interdisciplinary, but multidisciplinary. That's brilliant, B. That's not where I thought you were gonna go, actually. I thought you were gonna talk about the, like the videos that you've done, for instance, or the idea of Bahama Buku as a shit, like as an avatar, you mm -hmm. know, which you've talked about, like as a character that you were, you've been exploring over the course of your career, which I think also feed into this idea of a painter slash performer. Mm -hmm. um, but I love the way that you just, you just broke that down. And I mean, it, it's, it's, it's all of that. And, you know, you, and, and like I said, it's, it's also very much about like the form, like what is the form? Uh, um, you know, for example, like the, the film I did last year, uh, it's called, We Can't Cop Cars Without Seeing Cop Cars. Right. I knew that I wanted to talk about this um, uh, experience and expression of like joy within black masculinity and like the freedom of movement that comes with getting your car or even just a daydream about getting that car. Right. I wanted to do that, but I knew that as a painting, I didn't think I could convey that as effectively. Right. Um, and so I, the form of this is a film. It has to be a film. The performance also dictates the form. Yeah. Well, and that form was even more complicated because the film became a thing, but then that film was seen inside of an immersive installation, which was that gold painted car, which was a piece of public yeah. art on the, on the Atlanta. Is it the Beltway or the Beltline? I always get that mixed up. Which one is it? <laughs> the Beltline. On the Beltline. Line, Beltline. Right. So, so it became this, this participatory piece mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, uh, like I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm really into these like interactive engagements when it comes to art. Like, uh, you know, I don't have like a technical jargon <laughs> for this necessarily, but I just know like for for black people, we don't, we're we're not static. You know what I mean? We don't just go look at a painting, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it, it, we, we experience, you know, uh, things, you know, we go to the movies, that's why we talk into the screen, it's an experience. We go to the concert, 
Yeah, I don't even know why they have chairs at concerts where black artists are performing. Like we're not sitting down watching a concert. You know what I'm saying? Like we're dancing and singing along. That's why you know we it's call and response, right? That's what it is, call and response. And so, uh, you know, even with my 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 uh, paintings or my visual artworks, it's call and response. Like I'm I'm gonna put something out there for you to react to, and then it's gonna react back to you. And then, you know what I mean? We're gonna have this, this exchange. Um, that part to me is what makes art for us so salient, yeah. I'm coming back to, this is a bit of a jump, so forgive me, but, but I'm gonna make it anyway because it's what we do. All right. I, I always <laughs> like in this podcast to talk to folks about, about the meaning of their name, you know? Mm -hmm. um, because I feel like in many ways, you know, it's that idea of call and response from a spiritual level. Like our parents told us who we were going to be in the world in many ways by by giving us this thing that we this this grouping of of letters that we respond to for the rest of our lives. Like every time we hear that word, that's us, right? So the meaning mm -hmm. that's embedded in that um, matters on a spiritual level as well. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and your name means understanding in Swahili. So as I'm listening to you talk about what it is you're trying to convey in your work and how it is you're trying to connect with community in your work, I come back to this idea of, of it's about how we understand mm -hmm. not only what it is that you're doing, but, but these themes that you're exploring. Do you think that that's a fair assessment? Most definitely, yeah. Uh, I, I, would, I would say that that's a, a, a beautiful way to say that <laughs> um, because it's not only that uh, like Fahamu it doesn't just like it means understanding but I've, I've, I had, I've had people who speak Swahili explain it to me further it's not just the act of understanding but it's like Fahamu is a term that they use to refer to a teacher like a teacher is referred to Ufahamu you know like someone who who, who imparts understanding on us. And uh, I, I've always uh, thought that that was, uh, thought that that was special. Um, but you, you, as you were leading into your question, you made me think about uh, uh, something, like two, two points that I wanted to make. Um, one is a kind of an adage. There's this, I mean, you may have heard this before. It's sort of like a, um, uh, I don't know if it's a parable or something. Um, like in, in, in some traditional uh, African villages, like when a woman announces that she's with child, like she and her uh, husband come up with a song, right? That they sing to the baby in utero, right? And then they teach that song to their family members and ultimately to the village or to the community at large. And when the baby is born, everyone gathers together and they sing that song for the baby, right? And throughout the, throughout the child's life, people sing, you know, might sing the song to the child. Um, such that if that child ever goes astray, loses its way, you sing that song and it reminds them of who they are, it brings them home. Um, that, that when I heard that thing, it was such a beautiful 
concept uh, to me. And it made me think about um, my own uh, uh, parentage and my father in particular, who, by the way, uh, yesterday was the one year anniversary of his uh, passing. I didn't have the opportunity to grow up with my father. Um, you know, he uh, um, struggled with schizophrenia um, and actually, uh, you know, he, he, during a psychotic break, he killed my mom when I was four years old and have been institutionalized from, you know, since that time. Um, and when I was young, you know, after that, all that happened, we were adopted by relatives in South Carolina where my father was, you know, he might as well have been spawn of Satan, you know, like uh, there was never a nice thing said about him. Uh, in fact, I had a really, really healthy fear of him. I was afraid of him. You know what I'm saying? Like he was a monster in my mind because of the way that people talked about him. And, and even, you know, being aware of what happened with my mom, you know, because we were there, we, we saw what went down, you know. Anyway, um, when I was maybe seven or eight years old, at that time, I hated my name, you know. Uh, I wanted a normal, quote unquote, normal name. Uh, and I remember one day my dad ended up calling. Uh, we, we talked and he said, do you know what your name means? And I was like, my name means something? Mind you, I had no idea, you know? It's like, my name means something? He was like, yes, your name means understanding in Swahili. And hearing that made me realize something about myself that I never thought of before, right? Um, it, made, it, it made me aware of myself in a way that I, I should say, in a way that I'd never considered before. Um, and from that point on, I loved my name. Like it meant something. Oh, there's, there's something to this. Like it's not just, it's not just a random assortment of letters. Like there, there's actual purpose and magic in this name. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think maybe subconsciously, I've, from that point, I've, I've always tried to live up to that name. Yeah, I, I, I thank my parents for that. Um, I said all that other stuff about my dad to say that, you know, subsequent to leaving South Carolina and, and moving out on my own and connecting with, you know, my father's side of the family and, you know, even some, you know, uh, some of my mom's side of the family who were close with my dad, I learned all these amazing things about who my father was, you know, when I was, when I was an adult, you know, he was a Pan-Africanist, he was a musician, he played the saxophone and the drums. Uh, creative in all kinds of ways. He did, he was like a, a hands person, like anything that he could touch, he can make, like he can, you know, do all these amazing things, super brilliant um, strategist, you know, leader, like he had all these like plans and goals and like, it's just really amazing things, you know, and it made me realize even more that the significance of the name that they chose to give me, right? Like it wasn't done randomly. I, I love hearing the texture and the color that surrounds the people that are at the center of that story beyond the trauma of the moment, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, like talking about your father making jewelry and playing the sax and your, mm -hmm. your mom, you know, um, 
being extraordinary in the domestic sphere and 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 mm-hmm. and making an art out of what she did there, you know, and in the way mm-hmm. that you make art out of all of the circumstances of your life. To me, it's it's such a it's trauma, but it's triumph at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because of what y'all did with it. The fact that you were able to maintain a relationship with your father and still be able to see him beyond the monster into the man, right? Like mm-hmm. that's such a testament to to who you are and also to who your family is to allow that relationship to continue even though there was such understandable anger for what happened mm-hmm. on that day, you know? You know, it's one 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 thing that has always given me a great deal of um, comfort, I guess. Uh, and this is something I learned, you know, re- like fairly recently. You know, just in my studies of Ifa, you know, things I've been taught about Ifa. But in Ifa, is 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 understood, is taught that. We choose our path before we ever come here. We choose the road that we're going to take. We choose the parents, right? We choose the life. We choose the tra- We tr- choose the traumas, right? We we choose all of that because it informs our purpose here. You know, um, and even before I could express that or or articulate that, you know through the constructs of like Ifa cosmology, I think I always kind of understood that, um, or, you know, like as a child, I, I, I used to tell myself, just because something is, doesn't mean it has to be, right? Like we're, we don't, we're, we're not like locked into wherever we are. And so, yeah, I, I just think that that's, it's, it's an important perspective to have. And especially as, as black people like that is also a part of our lineage right is this ability uh, is this ability to be the alchemists of our reality uh as creative beings as creative uh, as, as as expressions of our creative energy we have the capacity at all times to redirect whatever is happening around us and, and shape it into what we want it to be. And that's, nobody can take that away from you. You know what I mean? You have to give that up. Like nobody can take that from you. Yeah. You know, the, the, that w- what we call resilience is creativity. Simple. Like, you know, you notice as a painter, as an artist, uh, the ability to overcome a challenge in a work that you're, like you're making a mark and you, I didn't mean to put that there, you know? Oh, I didn't like the way that those two colors come together. You automatically start processing in ways that you're, that, that are not even like conscious, right? You know. So your next almost reflex is correcting, right? Is that resilience? Is that, you know, um, is that spring back 
um, from from feeling like you just got got knocked down in some kind of way. The the reflex is to spring up, you know. Um, yeah, I just think yeah. I, I mean, I think it is like who we are. It's also what we are. Yeah. And that's something that the two of us share. Both of us are making bodies of work that are paintings and then also, you know, broader multidisciplinary explorations that are based in our family's history. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, larger conversations about, about Blackness and identity and, um, and how we move through this world. And I feel like a core part of that is really like doing ancestral work. Mm -hmm being in constant communication. I often refer to it as a collaboration yes, you know, with my that. ancestors. It is, it's definitely a collaboration. Uh, the, the term I use is symbiosis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, um, you know I, I, as long as we call our ancestors names, they will continue to exist. You know, sure. I, I, I thank my ancestors every day for you know, for their presence, right? For for uh, for the for filling me, right? And and coming through me, you know, because half the stuff I do <laughs> around here, look around, it's like I, I that was not me. Hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? That that's somebody else working on working through me. I'm I'm a vessel. Yeah. Yeah, I felt that that channeling. And then you look back at the mark on the page, whether it's a, a, a painting or, or a word that you've written. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh. So that was beyond me. Right. <laughs> right? Like that came through. <laughs> and, and there's a sense of gratitude for it. You know? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a note to end on. Thank <laughs> you so much for spending this time with me today. I appreciate you, Pam. Yeah. Well, it, it's, been a, it's been a joy uh, for me as well. I have... Um, you you really got me in my head, uh, but I, but I love that because it, it 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 means that like my my mind is working, my my heart is open, um, and uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm grateful for the experience and the opportunity. And anytime you want to talk, you know where to find me. Oh, you got that same. What's up? All right, Sam. All right, I'll holla. <laughs> I'll holla. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps others discover the show. You can follow us on Instagram at Lineage Podcast and visit lineagepodcast.com for more information about this project and to watch my new meditative film, We Hold These Truths. It features reflections on ancestry from season two lineage guests and was produced with the Park Avenue Armory. The lineage logo was designed by Tony Moore Images and the show's theme music is composed by Cody Gottbeats. For more from me, head on over to shawneejamila.com and stay tuned right here. New episodes drop every other Tuesday. <laughs>